Welcome to A Long Time in Finance, the podcast that takes a sharp and sometimes acerbic look at the often absurd world of money through the eyes of two journalists who've, well, spent quite a long time in finance. That's me, Jonathan Ford, and him, Neil Collins. Right, so welcome back to A Long Time in Finance. And this week, we we thought we'd do a bit of time travel. We're going back to late 1973, the time of the Yom Kippur War and the Arabs embargoing all their oil deliveries to the West, which led to, unsurprisingly, a pretty big hike in the price of oil. And the consequences of all that were pretty disastrous. Uh, The stock market collapsed. The FT30 index, the main thing on the stock market in those days, fell by nearly three quarters. Growth went from a pretty fast 5.1% in 1972 to a massive recession in 1974. Property prices collapsed. There was a banking crisis. I mean, almost everything but a plague of frogs. And to cap it all, an unpopular prime minister, Ted Heath, facing a coal strike, put the country on a three-day week to conserve energy and called an election on the issue of who governs Britain. We are limiting the use of electricity by almost all factories, shops and offices to three days a week. In terms of comfort, we shall have a harder Christmas than we have known since the war. And got the answer, not you anymore. So happy days, Neil. Do you do you remember the three-day week? I'm afraid I do. Yes, I have been a long time in finance, so I remember these things. Um, it was uh, extraordinary, really. The the stock market collapse was particularly dram- well, interesting because it just went on and on and on. Each time it rallied, uh, some some more bad news came out and it fell again. And you uh, were working on the stock market in those I, days? I was working, uh, I was a journalist on those days as well, well, yes, then and now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, the one of the interesting things was that uh, when uh, Ted Heath lost the election, yeah. uh, Dennis Healy became Chancellor uh, in uh, 1974 and he found himself running what turned into the doomsday machine where companies were being taxed on profits that they've made as a result of inflation but they the tax was so high they didn't have enough money left to replace the stock and that was why the stock market fell to a spectacular all-time low uh, at the beginning of 1975 and he was forced to, uh, as a Labour Chancellor, was forced to introduce all sorts of uh, carrots and, and concessions to the, the hated capitalists, because otherwise the hated capitalists were going to go bust. Yeah, which we, I would never do. Um, so so let's, let's think about why are we talking about the 1970s? Um, well, one reason is because there are a few echoes of the 1970s around at the moment. Notably, that unpleasant mixture, three-day week-style mixture of energy shortages and inflation. Yeah, that's pretty nasty combination. Um, but, but back the, then, it was back then it was a kind of external sort of yeah. shock. It was really kicked off by events in the Middle East, although there are a few mistakes in the in the domestic sphere. But As, the difference here, though, is it looks all looks a bit self-inflicted, doesn't it? 
I think that's a key difference. Yeah. I think that is really the point. I think that we are where we are because of the policy decisions on energy, particularly uh, over the last few years. Yeah. And in this, in this regard, it's not often on this, uh, on this podcast that we cite <laughs> the distinguished Saudi oil minister, Abdulaziz bin Salman. But he, he, he is, think he's been, else, I think I, well, I always keep an eye on what Saudi oil <laughs> ministers are saying. But he recently warned of a crisis coming, which he said would, res, was result, would result from falling investment in fossil fuels. Now, of course, Saudi Arabia has a pretty large pot of fossil but fuels in his own account. I think this is really interesting that he, you'd have thought that an energy crisis and a hugely hyped price would be in his interests. But he's arguing that actually he sees that it could be extremely dangerous. Um, and this is what he's had to say, that the, uh, the oil production by 2030 will be very seriously short of the expected uh, demand, yeah. uh, according to the uh, International Energy Authority. Well, because basically he thinks that on the current trends, the oil, oil production is going to fall by about 30% by 2030, but demand isn't going to go down at all. Yeah. So therefore, there's yeah. going to be a terrific squeeze. And I guess the point about oil investment is it you can't do it overnight. You've got to plan ahead a bit. So... If you miss your, if you, if you if you put in too many lost years, um, it starts to become a big struggle. So I suppose thinking about where we are at the moment, which is we we have shortages of energy. These shortages could be a much more permanent feature of the scene than people hope at the moment. The moment a lot of people think, oh well, it'll be fine by the summer. It'll all be a yeah. thing of the past. Oh, well, I think that's that's um, wishful thinking. The, uh, there seems no doubt that the enthusiasm for exploration and production from the Western oil companies is clearly uh, dramatically reduced, uh, partly as a result of uh, political pressure on them and partly because they, have, um, they believe in the Green Revolution um, or they say they do. Uh, well, is it is it that they believe in it, or is it that if you're running BP or Shell, and you're constantly getting bashed over the head for investing in new oil fields, and everyone's telling you, "Hey, we've got enough oil fields; we don't mm. need to to develop any more." Um, I seem to remember that was one of the lines. Well, I think you if... you you say, "Okay, well, fair enough, yeah. easy life." I won't. I'll invest more in 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 renewable energy, and yeah. I'll put less into the hated oil fields. And if everyone does a bit of that, even if it's only at the margin, it starts to reduce investment across the board by quite a lot. Well, I think it's more than at the margin. Um, okay. And you can't really blame the extremely well-paid oil executives for for um, for doing this, because Cause... they're only going to be there for a few years. And the last thing they want is being picketed by these uh, green groups at home and having their lives made miserable. But also, uh, it's they a... might as well um, go along with the flow, uh, take the money, and by the time the problems are absolutely acute, 
they will have moved on to something else. But as we know, that the, the, the chief executives, because of the way in which their pay is structured, are very, very focused on what happens to share prices. And as you yourself have pointed out on numerous occasions, the market has been very, very favourable for people with these high ESG ratings. So the company you often refer to, I think, is Orsted, which is a, a former oil and gas company from Denmark, which now does renewable energy, whose share price rocketed in recent years because of its yeah. its investments in renewable energy. And and so, to some extent, chief executives are just thinking, OK, well, what do I need to do? Uh, the share price will go up if I do this stuff because all these ESG funds will put money into it. So that's what they do. Maybe they're having yeah. a bit of second thoughts now that the ESG share prices are coming down. I think that maybe they Green are. Share prices. Um, but I think it's worth um, highlighting uh, a few things like BP's uh, reduced production yeah. and um, more particularly uh, I feel shells. a shell moment coming on. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah, here we go. So, incoming, I think. <laughs> incoming Prepare shell. Prepare yourselves, listeners. <laughs> um, uh, shell, which was quite... Once a great company. Was... <laughs> <laughs> Stop interrupting <laughs> while I'm interrupting. Uh, Shell uh, had identified this uh, oil prospect in the North Sea called Cambo, and uh, six months ago they were perfectly happy to uh, say that they were going to uh, dis develop it. Quite a useful little oil field. Mm. Uh, and now they've decided somehow that it's really not worth doing even though the oil price has more or less doubled since they made their original announcement. So this seems to me to have very little to do with the fundamentals and everything to do with the politics. OK, so but that's an interesting case, case in, in point, because was there pressure on Shell not to do Cambo was was did the did the government I mean I did the government put pressure on them not to do the, it? The uh, Scottish government uh, has changed its mind on this, and their latest uh, pronouncement was to discourage Shell from going ahead, uh, even though uh, oil and gas uh, exploration is outside their devolution remit. So they couldn't stop it, and and stop. the government in London wasn't against it. Well, it's never quite clear with Boris whether he uh, Johnson whether he thinks it's a good idea doing all this stuff or not. They were fine about it okay. until they decided that they weren't, and then they went. They didn't actually say you're not allowed to do it, but it was quite clear that they intended to put all sorts of bureaucratic obstacles in the way. So how important then was the ESG stuff in Cambo, do you think? Do you think that the shareholders were made, made a huge fuss? Did they say, we've invested in this oil company, but we don't want them to, to develop a new oil field? Well, I, actually, I don't think in that instance uh, they needed to. It was merely the threat of it and the, uh, and the change of mood from Westminster was enough to make the Shell uh, executives decide that it, you know, the pain wasn't worth it. Right. So they basically just pulled the whole thing because they thought it was going to give them a headache. Well, that's what I think. Yeah. They say, of course, it's uh, it's jolly difficult. and it's the uh, high oil price that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> they might as well say that, yeah. Um, okay, but, but it comes back to the fundamental point we're making here, which is if you tell these chief executives, A, they're bad people if they do it, if they think the share price will go up if they don't 
drill for oil when they're an oil company, yeah. then you're pretty much going to influence them in the direction of not developing fields like Cambe unless they have to. Yeah. Um, which is which uh, which comes back to our Saudi oil minister and his point, which is actually this lack of investment, this lack of if you might say courage, I suppose from some Western chief executives and majors is um, is is essentially one of the reasons why there isn't going to be enough oil and and of course others will do their best to fill the gap. I mean we're not going to stop I don't think the Saudis are going to stop no, investing no. and I think the Russians will stop investing and I don't right. think the Brazilians will. And doubtless we'll have to buy Iranian oil eventually too. So. Yeah, so um, it basically, uh, you know, this comes back to the point we've made before about ESG, which is putting pressure on companies to stop doing this sort of bad stuff. You know, drilling for oil is terrible. Evil people do it. So if you don't want to be evil, don't do it. All that happens is those activities don't stop. They just get transferred into the hands of people who care less about yes. the bad stuff. And I think this or is about a, looking bad. This is an important point too that the uh, the oil majors have all been selling off uh, what they describe as peripheral assets, and many of the buyers have been private equity buyers. Oh. Um, and uh, one doesn't like to demonise private equity particularly, but. The buyers have a completely different approach to uh, to oil exploration and, uh, and exploitation than the than the major companies. The major companies are there, or have been there for the long term. Mm. The private equity will take a field, let us say Cambo. They will say, "Well, we can make a lot of money out of this," but the money they make out of it is not going to go back into further exploration or production it will disappear from the industry no. so uh, that in, is another uh, factor yeah. which is uh, causing the long-term effect of reducing exploration and production can i jump in with a fact here please do okay so basically the question is you know how how big a play are private equity firms making well a recent um, study by an organization called the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, which is a, an American thing, um, noted that private equity firms have invested 1.1 trillion in oil assets since 2010, which mm. is more than the market cap of Exxon, Chevron and Royal Dutch Shell combined. So they are becoming, in their own way, an oil major. But as you say, they're in their incentives are very different from those traditionally you would associate with you know big oil companies yes so although that looks like a lot is a large large mm. number mm. um you know this is a sort of one-off really they're not in the business of of going exploring for oil in the same way as the oil majors have been for the last half century um they are there to exploit assets which they can see uh, make a turn on and take the money away. Yeah, I mean, we don't, obviously we don't know in the long run yet how much they will invest and what their role will be, it's hard to tell. But I have to agree, it's quite likely that in a lot of cases they will be tempted to run these assets down over time. You know, well, they're not going to go, they're not going to do the sort of, 
um, exploration that a, exactly. that, a, uh, that an Exxon or a Shell would do. They'll just, you know, you know, whatever. They're sort of vultures, really. They're kind of... Um, well, I don't think that's quite fair. I mean, and they're fair. not running the assets down. They're running the assets and they are depreciating assets. By an oil field isn't is a depreciating asset. Hmm. And when that's done, there won't be anything left. They will have made a huge amount of money, yeah. assuming their forecasts of the oil price are right and their yeah. costs don't get out of control. But the fact is that they will not be putting those profits hmm. into looking for more. Yeah. And, 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 and the risk to, you know, the risk is that, you know, we don't know what they're going to do, but the, the likelihood is what you say, that they will basically, they will expend what they've got their paws on, but they won't spend so much effort and energy in trying to replace it, um, that we will discover too late in the day that effectively not enough investment has gone in and we are basically in the hands of our great Russian friends or, or, or indeed, back in the world where an Arab oil embargo will sink sink our economies as it did in the nineteen seventies, um, you know. And it also, you know, the worry is that with the policy direction that we have, that we are kind of locking in in various means through, you know, trying to um, decarbonize things very quickly when we don't necessarily have the technology to do so. And also discouraging at the same time uh, people from continuing to supply the fossil fuels. To be honest, we're going to need for a bit longer than some of these optimistic yeah. forecasts suggest. So, um, what do we do? Uh, I think the first thing we do is to try and stop demonizing the oil companies because they are going to be important for a long time. Mm. And uh, they might be encouraged to uh, try and move towards a uh, more green uh, output. But the, as I say, demonising them is really counterproductive. And although you can't stop the demonstrators, some sort of support from the government would be uh, extremely helpful. As would support of what sort? Just a bit of moral encouragement, just to say yes, you know, we're going to need you, right. rather than allowing them to be, you know, put on the naughty step and left there. Yeah. Um, I, I, can I can I put on my Union Jack hat at this point and just say, you know, the world we described is one in which across the West there's a decline in investment. Um, Obviously, we, we in the UK, UK companies, you, you cannot necessarily influence what people around the world do. But there is a question of, of energy security, which is if there are going to be shortages, we should certainly as a country be doing what we can to ensure that we don't end up with scarce energy because we're reliant on other people who aren't investing. So, And I know you, you're very keen on, on fracking and doing well, more to try and exploit yeah. the energy resources that we might have left in the UK? On fracking, we just don't know what the position is, but actually the rules have made it impossible to find out. And it seems to me that a small step in the right direction would be at least to see whether the, uh, the gas under Lancashire and the North West is something which is 
large and uh, commercial enough to make a significant difference. At the moment, we haven't a clue because it's all been stopped and when en whenever anybody suggests drilling a well, they are overwhelmed by uh, protesters who essentially shut it down and the government has helped them with uh, all sorts of very strict regulations which have effectively killed whatever industry there might one day have been there. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's an interesting point. And, um, but I think more broadly, we just need to think about where this stuff is leading us. I'm going back to my, uh, the Saudi oil minister, Mr. Abdul Aziz bin Salman and his wise words. Um, I think we are in risk, at risk of entrenching a situation where we have expensive and scarce energy and we need to think about basically the direction we're headed in because you know come back to the 1970s again the ultimate electors ultimate arbiters in all this are the electors if you upset them too much with the policies you pursue by putting up the price of everything you know in the end they say you're not in charge anymore yeah which, of course, is exactly what happened to Ted Heath. And uh, do not kid yourself that it could not happen to the current lot. And on that note... That was A Long Time in Finance with Neil Collins and Jonathan Ford. The words were by us and the podcast was edited by Teddy Phillips. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe to the series on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week on Friday morning with another edition. See you then.